When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm really sorry. I'm multitasking by taking screenshots of the little pink house from Kilo. I'm putting them in my PowerPoint presentation right now. (laughs) Sorry. This is my life now that, you know, now that there's a new online speech scandal. Yeah. Little pink houses and speech scandals. Do say more. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's about it. What are you more intimidated by coming on rational security or having to teach eminent domain in two hours? I mean, I feel like they're both very intense, emotionally draining experiences. Yeah. I, I think that I'm a little bit more concerned about rational security. You should be. It's daunting. Yeah. The question I have is I read recently that you can now Airbnb the big pink house where like Dylan and the band recorded the basement tapes. And can you do the same for the little pink house from Kilo? I think this is like the ultimate in lawyer destination tourism. And we're missing oh. out on it. Well, I guess the house got plowed over. That was kind of the point. Right? No, it didn't get Maybe plowed that's... over. It got saved and moved. And now feral right. cats, feral cats now live where the little pink house once stood. It's just like vacant setback and feral cats. Which is what Justice Souter wanted all along. He's a famous cat man. I think that's <laughs> I think that's right. It's a huge fan. See, listeners, <laughs> if you go to law school, you too can have conversations like this. Guys, this is a terrible B-roll. This, this is, is our terrible, worst B-roll of all time. I, really I ruined bad. it because I brought up eminent domain, which is not really funny, but I'm trying so hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Resino Royale. These are getting harder and harder <laughs> every week. <laughs> but I... <laughs> I have something like 26 more weeks to go before I finish out the year that I initially committed to do this, so we're going to keep pulling on it, but let's keep going. Well, I am your co-host, Scott R. Anderson, and I am delighted to be here with my other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And we are sadly without our usual third co-host, Quinta Jurassic, who is out on leave on vacation, but we are delighted to have two very special guests with us. First, Lawfare Executive Editor and Repeat Rational Security Guest, Natalie Orpit. Hello, everyone. And our special guest, first-time Rational Security Guest, to my knowledge, although you probably were on Rational Security 1.0 at some point, maybe? Yeah, okay. First-time Rational Security 2.0 Guest, Kate Klonick, Law Professor Extraordinaire. Hello, Kate. Hello. Did I get the right extraordinaire? Do you prefer, like, is you for a Law Professor Extraordinaire, TV Internet Host Extraordinaire? Uh, do you prefer a Tech Person Extraordinaire? Well, I have this mug next to me, and it's not going to be my object lesson, but I really prefer Squirrel Whisperer. <laughs> so that's, you know, I just, there are many hats. It's Kate Klonick, friend to injured small woodland creatures everywhere. Yeah. You know, they almost, there's a Marvel superhero named Squirrel Girl, and they almost made a TV show based off of her. Uh, with the woman in the AT&T commercials. And I feel like, but I think she's moved on to other projects. So you have a moment to get in here. If you want to embrace the acting hat to add <laughs> onto your four or five other hats, this is the moment. Yeah, I will keep that in mind. 
This is a display of an astonishing array of knowledge. Yeah. I. How did you know that? About the oh, you know, girl's career, like actually very specifically. <laughs> I met her. I met her once actually a couple weeks ago. She's like friend of a friend of a friend, uh, or a couple months ago, I should say, uh, at a fundraiser, and it came up at that point. I recall, but I may be a little bit of a superhero nerd. I may have known that already. Who knows? Uh, you know, the MCU is growing by bounds and bounds. When you have a kid at home, you tend to like dig deep into your old hobbies, as we've discussed on this before. Uh, and so I've gotten a little back into the MCU. I'm not going to lie. What is what is Squirrel Girl's superpower? Is it throwing nuts? Can can she throw nuts at like hypersonic speeds? Because that, I mean, if you can throw a nut fast enough, even a nut will cause some real damage. I that may be right. It's like a gambit sort of situation where she's just, she's just like hurling nuts left and right, and they're all like become laser beams. Maybe exactly. Um, I think she could just talk to squirrels, as I recall, but I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> I am Squirrel Girl. Wait a second. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. It's not oh acting, God. it's just performative. You know, it's like a documentary, basically. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to act if it's just your actual That's life, Scott. A, a <laughs> fictionalized account of Kate Klonick's childhood. Squirrel girl. Exactly. <laughs> well, with that long lead up, we are excited to have you, audience, here with us today. I'm really We are excited. calling the In Lieu of Q edition, as we are absent <laughs> Quinta Jurassic, but we are delighted to have Kate here, of course, is one of the co-hosts of the show In Lieu of Fun on YouTube's most days at 5 p.m. But we're excited to have you all here to talk over a few of the big mass security news stories this week, beginning with topic one, time to musk up. Prototypical eccentric billionaire Elon Musk has just finalized a deal to purchase Twitter, bring it private, and implement a number of changes he claims are intended to expand freedom of speech. What will this mean for the future of Twitter and other social media platforms? Topic two, Levivin so soon. The Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State just finished a three-hour visit to Kiev, where they committed more support to the Ukrainian government and to gradually restaff the U.S. diplomatic presence in-country. Why are U.S. diplomats behind Europe and returning to Kiev? Should the Biden administration move more quickly? And topic three, too much MTG gives me headaches. Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene gave several hours of testimony at a hearing on Friday triggered by efforts by progressive activists to disqualify her from holding office for supporting the January 6th insurrection pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What did we learn about Greene's activities that day and in the lead up to that day? And what should we make of the broader effort to disqualify legislators using this authority? For our first topic, Natalie, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Okay, so... Twitter is abuzz with some news, and that is that on Monday, Elon Musk agreed to buy Twitter for $44 billion, um, which was a 38% premium over the price that was earlier this month. So this came after a tale of delightful intrigue involving an announcement that Musk had purchased somewhat furtively 9% of the company and become its lar- one of its largest shareholders, that he was perhaps going to join the board of directors as a way to accommodate some of his concerns um, about the platform. Then he was definitely not going to join the board of directors, and he hurled a bunch of insults at Twitter on Twitter. And then he announced that he would, in fact, like to buy Twitter. So now, after the agreement has been finalized, and of course, the deal itself is not yet final, the conversation is focusing on what's going to happen to Twitter once it's fully in Musk's hands. Um, And in particular, given that he's called himself a free speech absolutist, what is all of this going to look like? So my first question to all of you guys, and Kate, I'd love to turn to you first, is what actually 
does this mean in practical terms? What should we look for when it comes to this idea of how a differing vision of free speech and content moderation will sort of manifest itself on the platform? I mean, I think that there's about three main scenarios. I think the first one is nothing really changes. Like the site just kind of keeps running in the, like exactly as it's been running now. There's not a ton of change. The second one is that it becomes friends of Elon Musk and they get special treatment and certain people get deleted or banned or taken down. Um, Something that I've heard a lot of from people that are inside were inside Twitter over the last um, couple of years is that Musk was a frequent uh, shaker of trees to try to get people banned from the site that he thought were harassing him or hurting Tesla or coming after his companies. Um, And so, you know, it would be, it'll be interesting to see if he just takes them out while claiming to be pro free speech. Um, And then like the, I think the third option is this like completely bizarro world in which he tries to not just do a completely ad hoc arbitrary friends of Elon nepotism type version of content moderation, but he actually thinks that he could bring some coherence to the problem of content moderation in online speech by keeping up everything that's legal, quote unquote, on the site, which is a lot of stuff, uh, especially in the United States where um, pornography, crush videos, hate speech, uh, spam are all First Amendment protected activity. And I think that that is probably the most foolhardy and short-sighted of all of these. You've seen him kind of say that he's going to institute a real name policy, things like that. I mean, those are changes that are so have been so widely debunked as effective that it's like almost like setting back content moderation, everything we know about online speech and how best to police it or regulate it by like a, a decade at least or two. So it's like, maybe it's like 2002 again. So I, I want to read a, th- a, a tweet from uh, Jack Dorsey, who, of course, is Twitter's founder. And this was uh, from yesterday. Um, and so Jack writes, in principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. So, so I, don't, I don't know exactly what to say about that, about that last sentence. I'm not sure. Anyone is in the position to extend the light of consciousness, whatever the light of consciousness is. Um, but I do think the, the the first few sentences of that tweet actually really nicely sum up the problem. And, and I think what it shows is that if Twitter is going to be a kind of global public sphere, or at least a big chunk of it, it is just not compatible for that to exist in its current ownership structure. Uh, and the problem is not that it's a public company versus a private company, though I do think there is something about the kind of short-term profit imperatives of public ownership that has a, a bad effect on social media companies. But rather, it's just the idea that any one individual should be able to control this fundamental commons. Um, and so you know, to me, I think this is like a nice reductio ad absurdum uh, of the problem of, well, you can't solve for the problem of Twitter being a company. It should not be a company because then the best you could hope for is someone like Musk taking it private. The whole thing is, I think, a total uh, a total mess. Um, you know, I think if if Musk really wants to extend the light of consciousness, what he should do is work on turning Twitter into an actual protocol, you know, working on things like the Blue Sky Project, which you know Twitter has started 
thinking about in terms of kind of open protocols um, or, or making sure that Twitter interoperates with other decentralized social media platforms like Mastodon uh, or, or other things that use the activity pub decentralized uh, uh, model. But I, th I think the, the problem with Twitter is, is that whoever owns it, you cannot have a system in which you have one set of content moderation standards for a global platform and where you have any particular individual, Elon Musk or anyone else who has, who wields that level of, of power. And, and I think in the kind of, I think slightly overwrought freak out over Musk's purchase, um, people are focusing on the wrong thing, which is not that, you know, Musk will own Twitter or someone else will own Twitter, but that Twitter exists as a company rather than as a protocol, right? Um, you know, we don't have these fights over email uh, in large part because uh, email, although it's I think, just as important right, as social media, is decentralized. And so we, we, we just can't worry too much about content moderation because it's not possible. And so I think Twitter has to move in that in that direction, frankly. So can I just say one thing about the it's a company that's a bad thing construct, because it seems to me that it's not only the fact of pressures coming from investors and Wall Street and the need for advertising dollars, which apparently Musk doesn't care about because he said that he doesn't care about the economics of this and whether or not it makes a profit for him. But being a public company also means that you are sub subject to regulations and in particular that you have reporting requirements. And it seems to me that those reporting requirements are a lot more accessible to most people than doing this solution um, that Musk has talked about of making the algorithms public and transparent, because most people don't know what that means or how to read algorithms. Also, I think there's a separate question of like the lack of transparency or secrecy about how the algorithms work is is not the same thing as the algorithms can't still be criticized for being problematic. But I'm I'm curious what you guys think about this you know, I don't, I don't know that I accept the premise that it is problematic that Twitter is a company as compared to what the realistic alternatives are. I mean, I take the point that Alan was trying to make is basically the thing about Musk is that it reveals fault lines that have existed for a long time. People are just aware of them now because it's a very dramatic example of a company, public or private. I don't think I agree with you that I don't think it hugely matters. Switching hands when it's kind of all evolving, when it was all evolving over the last 10, 15, 20 years, all of this has kind of slowly been happening. And now I think it's actually kind of quite fascinating that you have someone like Mark Zuckerberg looks quite the benevolent dictator trying to devolve his power to the oversight board or, you know, or so like seems, you know, wonderful in comparison to, to kind of the mercurial hyperactive billionaire, you know, in that we have in Musk. But I think to Alan's point, I agree in the protocol idea. And actually I would love to talk about Mastodon a little bit, Alan. I think that this is like, would be uh, if a lot of people have been talking about maybe this is Mastodon's moment, maybe this is the moment for there to be lots of clones of Twitter. One of the things that I this is just kind of in the background of is like I've been thinking a lot about what all of this means for how large a company should be if it connects as many people in communication as something like Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube does. Like 
it is so expensive to run these content moderation, these centers, no matter what kind of company you're at. And so if you're going to do any type of moderation at all, like maybe you, like at this scale, maybe you just need to be this big. Um, and I'm just kind of interested about what that means. Okay. I want to ask you, uh, as somebody who's thought a lot more about this than I have, and frankly, probably uses Twitter a lot more than I do, uh, and they have a more fundamental familiarity with what, the subject matter. You know, it strikes me as interesting that Twitter has triggered such a freak out, this particular move, given that it's a, like a much smaller market share compared to other social media companies, right? It's just way smaller than Instagram or Facebook or a lot of the other major social media platforms. But it seems to be perceived as having this outsized influence, including by Musk himself, who describes it as like an online town square in his press statement announcing the purchase. And in my mind, like the reason why that is, to me, it seems, and frankly, is the only reason I really spend much time on Twitter at all is because it is so heavily used by the media. And so it has this kind of outsized impact in terms of reporters are on Twitter. They use Twitter a lot. It's a way that people get hot takes out there very quickly that then get picked up in the media. And frankly, that strikes me as its biggest marginal advantage over a lot of these other platforms. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm curious whether that sounds right to you. And if if it is, does that mean we need to think about this differently than other social media platforms in terms of how we approach it in terms of whether it's ownership, whether it's content moderation, what sort of like rights and speech, free speech-ish type rights you might want to have compared to something like Facebook, which is much more about interpersonal communications, it seems like, and then some commercial activities for like companies. And then that, I want to compare that to like Elon's priors. Like, what do we know about what he says he wants to do here? People have like just like a wildly hostile reaction to him in a way that I don't fully understand. Like he's a weirdo, but like most millionaires are weirdos. I think becoming a millionaire or billionaire just makes you a weirdo. I kind of appreciate that at least he's very open about his weirdness. I think Grimes is okay. I like some of her early albums. And so like there's there's areas where I have common ground with him. I'm trying to figure out how spooked I should be uh, about this sort of move, given Twitter's space for like our industry, for, for people who are kind of media adjacent, like all of us really are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point that the media uses Twitter a lot. I mean, so here's the thing is that all of the social media platforms are to some extent... Uh, sui generis in terms of not just their network effects, but their infrastructure and design, right? So Twitter is primarily text-based. It had a galvanizing um, effect for a pre-smartphone era when you could like literally on your alphanumeric keypad <laughs> type your text message to a Twitter handle or and have it appear on the internet. And so there's that. And that means that there are certain types of content moderation that are actually much easier than others. So it's very hard to do long video like YouTube. And they have different types of models too, in terms of what they can monetize for creators. And they have different types of privacy regimes. Like Facebook is very much a walled garden. No one really uses Facebook with privacy settings fully on public, um, unless you're an actual kind of a public figure in some way. Very few people do anyways that know how to change their settings. And that's the opposite is true of Twitter. The vast majority of people using Twitter are not using it in a, in a private way. Um, and so I just kind of think that they're all very different. And But you're right. Like, why are we freaking out so much about this? And I just think that it's because Twitter has a very public, because it isn't a walled garden at all, really, it's mostly just used totally publicly. And because it's mostly text-based, it's very consumable. It's very easy to translate things. It's very bite-sized. Things meme quickly, things change quickly. 
and you can get outside your circle of influence fairly quickly. Uh, and so I don't know, all of those things kind of make it uh, a pretty exceptional, like on the on the closer side of a public square type of thing that I would say something like Facebook is, or certainly something like YouTube is. But I, I, I take your point. I, I don't know why it has such a spot in, in kind of the zeitgeist. I think that one of the main things is that it was one of the first ones. Another one is that it was a huge... Uh, it played a huge role in the, you know, early democracy techno utopian movements like the Arab Spring, uh, and then I think obviously we just came off of seeing it used by the president of the United States as like in lieu of uh, a press secretary or uh, anything else, right? And so I think that I, I don't know. I just think it has a real, uh, it has real cachet uh, in that sense. Um, but I think it's super easily clonable. I mean, I know it's clonable and this is what most people are saying right now. It's just like that this will be the most, like whatever happens to the site, people will probably leave if it gets unusable. Um, and there will just be another one. So that'll be interesting. Okay. Can I ask one follow-up just on that is, you know, if the big, a big utility, a big marginal ad of, Twitter is kind of like the media presence, like is the fact that by virtue of its institutional development, it has developed this role where the media really turns to it. Does that make it a lot harder to clone? Does that maybe make it like, certainly you can clone the technology, but it's actually like the embedded social role it's already playing that gives it its value, which strikes me as not as easy thing to port, barring some sort of like big social movement or conscious decision among industry leaders and other people that are the big drivers of, of how it's used, at least, again, the slice of it that I have experience with. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great point, that the, that all of journalism and media being on Twitter might just capture it, kept, is like a large enough market to have captured and will keep people there. But to Alan's point, which I think is like, I really do think is like fascinating, is the interoperability point. Like if you had, if it got so bad that like you just there were so many clones and people were in so many different places would there be a call for interoperability and protocols to make these sites kind of interoperable with each other in a way that like would this finally be the tipping point like right now it is fairly easy to use twitter and you know, and the couple of other handfuls of sites that we use. But I'm just, I really think that this is, maybe this will be the the push that gets interoperability to be taken seriously by regulators or that economics, like the creates a market for it. Yeah. And I, I just, I just don't see any alternative if Musk wants to avoid having to wade into this endless content moderation fight, right? I mean, Zuckerberg again is trying to deal with this by outsourcing it in one way. We'll see if that works. It's interesting, um, but you know, I don't know if it scales exactly the, the the way that he'll need it to at Facebook, right? The other way to do it is just to eliminate the very possibility of content moderation to begin with, right? Uh, and push it down to more local levels, right? The, the trade-off is you accept that there's much less global content moderation, but you empower users to have much more local content moderation, right? And and, and so you know, I think people are I think criticizing Musk for a vanity project, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, this is not a bad vanity project as far as they go, because in fact, it may not be possible, or increasingly, at least I think it's increasingly not possible to have a healthy Twitter-like system based on profit motives. You know, in part again because of the the point that Kate made earlier, which is that content moderation is so unbelievably expensive. Right. And AI is not going to solve this problem anytime soon. Content moderation is just so expensive that to have it 
you have to have an incredibly monetized system. And so you have to have a system that encourages, for example, users to spend as much time in it as possible, which as we know is not great for society. It's not great for, you know, teenage mental health, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you need to have a, a system that, um, whatever the algorithm is ultimately elevates the most controversial clickable content, because of course you have to somehow sell ads and make money. So this is the problem. The, the, the very idea of content moderation itself has this kind of like almost internal contradiction because the cost of doing content moderation requires you to create a toxic platform. It's, it's totally crazy making. The other thing I just want to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious from all of you, but especially from Kate, cause you're so plugged into this, it, it, the obtuseness of some of the response to this news strikes me as just very, very frustrating, right? Like, you don't have to like Elon Musk. I'm kind of with Scott. I don't fully understand why everyone hates him so much. Like he, he does, he does seem to have like created some interesting value in the world with Tesla and stuff like that. I mean, he has, he's like a troll too, which annoys people, I guess. But even putting that aside, like let's say Elon Musk really is a bad actor, right? I would have thought that all of the kind of folks on the left who chuckled with glee when, you know, all the right-wingers got deplatformed you know, maybe correctly in the wake of the 2020 January 6th and all of that. And we're told, well, just start your own platform, right? Like you would think that those same people would be like, hmm, I see the problem with that now. What is, you know, we, we, we have, we have sown, now we are reaping, right? And yet you don't like, there's, there's just like a shocking lack of recognition that yes, of course, if you don't think the first amendment should apply to private platforms, which as a legal matter, it doesn't, this is the kind of stuff that can happen to your side too. And like the, the total lack of grappling with that strikes me as kind of crazy making. Oh, it's insanely crazy making. I mean, but this is like, this is the principle. I mean, like, yes, it's hard to have principles, Alan. You've really touched on something there. Like, <laughs> so, so Alan's hot take of the day. Principles, hard like, to have. The making of crazy making into a word. <laughs> We've used seven or eight times now. <laughs> It's okay. I didn't notice. I was like too much. I was too busy hating Elon Musk. But actually, guys, it just hit me for the first time today that the boring company is his tunnel company and it's a pun. And it just hit me for the first time on the train on the and I was just like, galaxy brain over here people anyways a wordplay based company is the ultimate vanity project and one i wholeheartedly this made me explain why i'm a musk bro this may be it right now is the wordplay well like i i do think that he posted uh he posted a while ago to troll people that but what about removing the word w from the name twitter and that made everyone kind of cackle and like oh this silly schoolboy and then like yeah, I was kind of like, but actually, like a titter is a, is actually a titter is actually a definitionally precise term for like what this is. Um, but anyways, never mind. I, I think that there is this part that of all of this that kind of Alan is touching on about like, yeah, I I'm really like there are a lot of obtuse ideological takes out there right now. They always are out there. It's one of the things that makes this such a maddening thing to study, but also kind of fascinating if you are a person that can kind of stick to principles and keep drawing it back to that. But I think that there's going... So the good news possibly out of this is that we get some type of momentum for interoperability and protocols and kind of things like that. That's the best news. The downside, I think, is definitely that it becomes an unusable site. It's a lot of growing pains in the in the intermediary phases of this. And then like I think that the worst possible kind of outcome is that it just really erases 10 to 20 years of work and lessons and acknowledgement about how 
hard this problem is, how, you know, some of the best practices we come up with for online speech and just memory holes them. And it just, you know, nothing matters. So <laughs> I'm just going to end on that optimistic note of nihilism. So <laughs> We end on that point a lot, <laughs> coincidentally. And in fact, from one egomaniacal billionaire to another, uh, and I, sh- I should, I, I have to, I have to give credit. Thank you, Natalie. Natalie, Natalie's, you know, frantically chatting me good punny transitions. Um, so I do, I do it's appreciate it. It's because I've been abstaining from the how should we feel about Elon Musk conversation. But being a billionaire in rubles isn't what it was two or three months ago. Oh, ouch. Uh, so from, from one egomaniacal billionaire to another and his value-destroying activities in Ukraine. So uh, we'll, we'll do our, our usual Ukraine segment now. Um, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken uh, just finished a, a quick trip to uh, Kiev where they spoke with Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky, promised continued support, took a somewhat, at least rhetorically, somewhat harder line against Russia than the United States has taken, at least in the past. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin emphasized that America's sort of goal out of this, or one of America's goals out of this conflict is to make sure that Russia's military capabilities don't allow it to continue the sort of Ukraine-style aggression uh, it has uh, it has done before. You know, these remarks then caused the, the Russians to take some umbrage. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, you know, made some comment about let's not start World War III, sort of the usual rhetorical back and forth. So a couple of things to, to ask about here, and I want to start with, with you, Scott, and I just want to kind of start with the basic question of how much does it matter to physically get these two high-ranking U.S. officials into Ukraine? You know, is this just a symbolic issue? Was it really important for them to be there personally? Because they they went at some risk to themselves. It was supposed to be a uh, a more secret trip, but you know, shortly before they left from Poland to to Kiev, um, you know, where they were coming from Poland was was made public, and that required some scrambling. They ultimately did make the trip, um, but it was not without its security risks. Obviously, entering into a uh, a war zone. So was was that part of it worth it? That's a really good question. And you're right to zoom in on the symbolic part of it. That's really the big difference, frankly. I mean, look, you don't have senior cabinet level officials routinely visiting any country uh, in the world, really. Uh, you know, even Canada or Mexico or London or Israel or any other major allies, right? So it's not an essential prerequisite to getting a lot of business done. We can have a separate conversation about a big part of one of their deliverables, which is the gradual return of diplomats to Ukraine, where their in-person presence there can make a big difference. But it's different from this high-level visit. The high-level visit is all about symbolism. Uh, It's all about sending the message, hey, look, we are going to stand by and take some risk on. Like It's the fact that this is a risky behavior that gives it that symbolic value because they're saying we understand the threat the Ukrainian people are under, the difficult conditions Russia is putting them under, and we are going to be willing to take on some of that risk ourselves to show our support to them, to engage with them, to walk the streets uh, with Volodymyr Zelensky and take a stand against Russia, uh, not just in the provision of support and rhetoric and sanctions as we have been doing, but actually at personal risk. You know, we've seen a number of European leaders uh, visit Kiev over the last several weeks, several weeks before American officials even really seriously considered it. There's been some debate as to, well, why didn't President Biden or Vice President 
Paris visit. There have been other questions about why the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, didn't go. Although, frankly, like I think having the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State is a bigger deal than Jake Sullivan going. Uh, although, you know, maybe you could have had more direct one-on-one technical conversations with Sullivan, who probably uh, might have a little, be a little more focused on this issue, depending on how they kind of divide up the issues at NSC right now. But it's all about projecting this risk without taking on too much risk. I think there's a concern about Biden and Harris. If something were to inadvertently happen to one of them, and that's a risk because it is an active conflict zone still, you know, that could provide a major precipitating event where there's going to be a lot of pressure to escalate on the part of the Americans. And I think the subtle message is that may not be as true for Blinken and Austin. I think it probably would be true to a substantial extent, not the same if you're targeting the head of state or the vice head of state. And so I think that was part of the calculus that went into this. And I think it's a reasonable one. You know, I think people tend to be very bullish of saying, well, we should be there taking on these risks. But the truth is the uh, the same as European allies and other countries. But, you know, A, the Biden administration has been very good about letting the Europeans really take the lead and be the bullish ones on Ukraine. I think it's good to continue to let them to do that. That's what we wanted really from Europe for the last 20 years is them being more assertive and taking on more responsibility for their own regional security. And they are really doing that. Um, so might as well keep it going. And two, the United States just is in a different security calculus than a lot of these other countries um, because of the risk of escalation, because of our types of global presences we have, even compared to the UK and other major powers, the United States is just in a different position and the risk calculus is different there. And the third factor that we should talk about is, is worth talking about also is that the United States also is still suffering, and particularly like career people, in my opinion, at the State Department and other agencies, from the aftermath of the Benghazi experience, um, where we uh, obviously lost U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens uh, in a terrible terrorist attack in Libya, uh, or a little less than a decade ago. And that triggered years of very partisan influence uh, investigations partisan narratives, a lot of personal slander, a lot of personal attacks, a lot of people. And the message people came away from that is uh, that we need to be more risk averse about this, that Congress doesn't have this tolerance for expeditionary diplomacy and risk taking by diplomats that some people say we should have. And I think there's a good argument we should have more of. And so Congress really hasn't taken any steps to correct that or to indicate that, no, we're willing to take risks. We were willing to support this sort of mission and endeavor. And so that's another reason why I think that people are just a little more conservative on the American side than in other governments where you haven't seen these sorts of incidents politicized so recently. So in that case, let's let's then turn to Austin's remarks about the strategic goals that America uh, America has, right, which is, at least according to him, preventing Russia from being able to repeat this. And and. I actually have a couple of questions there, which is one, you know, what is it that America can do to best accomplish that goal? Right? Is it just a matter of continuing the current sanctions and of continuing to, to send sort of heavy weapons into Ukraine so that Russian military capabilities continue to be degraded and, you know, whatever Russian army comes out of this is just substantially weakened? Uh, or is there something else that, that should be done? And the second question is, if this really is the U.S. strategy, does that represent a change and does that represent an escalation? Because then it awfully does seem like there is a sort of proxy war going on, at least on the United States' front, where um, Ukraine is being used as a kind of client state to further degrade the you know, Russian military capabilities. And that may be fine. That may be justifiable both strategically and, and morally in this case, given that the Ukrainians clearly want our assistance. But it, it does seem to potentially raise the stakes uh, of this conflict. And, and, you know, are we appropriately prepared to to do that? Yeah. I mean, I don't have the answer to that question. I want to ask a, a follow-up question on that too, which is just kind of, does this make it harder or easier for there to be an off-ramp 
to the Ukraine conflict? Does it, or does it do nothing? Do we think that that does nothing? Because I'm just kind of, you know, counting the weeks at this point that this has been going by and thinking, you know, and, and as everyone pointed out when all of this began was that there was just, it was going to be so difficult to find a moment for Putin to, to ever acknowledge that this wasn't a good idea and probably, hopefully, that he doesn't obviously isn't successful. But what does kind of sending U.S. diplomats there cabinet members, what does that do? Like, what is that actually, does that matter? Does it make it worse? Does it make it better? I think those are all good questions. And there are things that I think are going through the White House's thought process as they're willing to do this. It's a provocative act, right? Like you are kind of rubbing your face, rubbing in the face of Vladimir Putin that they have failed to take Kiev and really to present enough of a threat that we're not willing to do steps like this. Um, and that's something European leaders have already done. That's part of what makes it an important symbolic stance for Ukraine, why Ukrainians want it, uh, and why it gives them morale. Um, but there is a balancing act to be struck saying, well, how much do we, provocative do we want to be with the Russians? And I think that's why we see a very gradual approach that the United States government says it's going to take. It says basically we're going to send people on temporary trips from Poland, where they're based now, back into Lviv at first, which is a relatively safe part of the country, although still subject to rocket attacks periodically. And then slowly sort of build back towards having a presence in Kyiv, whereas other countries have said they're going to move much more quickly. And again, I think part of this is about this very careful calculus about not doing things too provocative. And I think that's actually right, right-minded. The United States does things... Russia receives it very differently. Russia did not, you know, take out rail lines after you saw, uh, you know, uh, the UK leader, other European leaders visit the country. Shortly after it was reported that Austin and Blinken entered the country by rail line, he targeted the exact rail lines they were riding on, I believe. Uh, I could be off on that, but certainly in the part of the country, out in Lviv in the west of the country, were attacked. So there is this kind of acts of provocation. Yeah, not the most, <laughs> not the most subtle hint <laughs> that there may be escalations or risk of engaging this sort of behavior. Now, they're probably not worth it to do against small groups of diplomats, but there is a message here saying, like, you're having some pushback, and it's got to be a careful calculus there. In terms of off-ramps, the bigger question and the questions you raised, Alan, about, you know, how do we engage this goal of diminishing Russian military capabilities that kind of came out as recent discussions saying that's the U.S. A US policy goal, you know, it's, a, again, a balancing act. I don't think that means that we're going to force the Ukrainians to stay at war longer than they want to. But I also think it means the administration is not going to pressure them to go for peace and make concessions on territory or other fronts that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. That's actually been pretty consistent with the administration's front. A lot of the diminishing the Russian capability, I think, at this point, isn't about trying to get them stuck in a quagmire, but it's about the overall framing of saying, look, we're going to back the Ukrainians to the mat as far as they're willing to go. And then, by the way, we have export controls and lots of other measures we're imposing that are designed to long-term diminish Russia's military capabilities and have been since they started this campaign. I think the fundamental logic is that even if Russia were to say, OK, we're going to stop this now, as long as they have this capability, it's very easy for them to hop right back across that border. And while I think there may be a lot of push, particularly coming up relatively soon uh, in the next few months as you know Russia kind of hits a point of depletion and maybe feeling more sensitive to push for ceasefires and to push for you know stops of advances, you know I think you're going to be hard pressed for anybody to take seriously the idea that uh, Russia under its current leadership can retain this capability and won't use it again. There's going to be a real effort to see either leadership needs to change or its capabilities need to change or some combination of both. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I'm interested in how much emphasis you guys are putting on the diplomats coming back into the country as compared to the other initiatives that they were there to announce, namely the the fact of $700 million in additional military aid. And on that point, I thought it was interesting the way that it's being apportioned, um, which I think reflects some strategy. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. But so 300 million of it was going directly to Ukraine. 400 million was going to other countries to boost or replenish their own stocks, which I read as an effort to sort of continue this multilateral standing up to Russia so that it is sort of, again, in the same vein, not just the United States, but a sort of united front of other countries that are providing military and other assistance to Ukraine. But it, And it seems to me that's much more likely to be perceived as an escalation than is sending diplomats back into the country. And it, to me, it seemed telling that it wasn't just Secretary Blinken who was there, which would have sufficed if, if we were focusing on the role of our diplomats in Ukraine and, and making a, a point of the significance of our sending diplomats back in. But you know, Austin was there and he is convening 40 countries, um, I think, today to talk about coordinating military assistance. To me, that seems like the bigger thing that Russia is likely to respond to and, and is responding to already. Yeah, I, I agree with you that that we should not kind of over-rotate on the sending back of the diplomats in. I mean, I, I do think it's important. There are some, as Scott pointed out, there are some practical advantages to having like a large in-person group there in, in Kiev to you know, help coordinate between the U.S. and the Ukrainians. Um, I think a lot of it is, again, the symbolism, the symbolism of of uh, showing confidence in the Ukrainians to be able to secure the safety of U.S. diplomats, right? It shows confidence that Kiev is not under such threat that uh, a U.S. presence there would not be safe. You know, it does, I think, it raises the stakes at least somewhat because although the Ukrainians do have control over Kiev, right, there may be more bombing. We don't know how this war will turn. And if you get American diplomats killed in this conflict, obviously that doesn't necessarily change its fundamental nature, but it kind of continues um, or it would heighten America's investment on, on the Ukrainian side. But I do agree with you, Natalie, that the more important the more important issue is is the actual provision of, of funds and military supplies and and, and weapons and, and that sort of thing. And I think that, that goes, I think, to Kate's question about what the off-ramp is, right? Because you know, if I understand the kind of if I understand correctly sort of how this war has turned into its latest phase, there is now basically a fight over territory in southeastern Ukraine in the Donbass, because at some point, both sides, and particularly the Russian side, will at some point kind of lose the ability to continue its current tempo. And at that point, they there will be negotiations. And who, you know, and as Kate knows, possession is nine tenths of the law, right? And so, whoever has actual physical control over some landmass at that point will have a much better bargaining position, right? So, by arming the Ukrainians as much as possible right now, that will go to limiting the amount of land amount of territory that the Russians will control, and that will make a settlement and any ultimate settlement be more favorable for the Ukrainians. The, the real question, I think, is at what point 
is a settlement so unfavorable to the Russians, and in particular to Putin himself and his ability to continue his hold on power, that he feels the need to escalate, for example, using tactical nuclear weapons. You know, that, it's an uncomfortable thing to think about because the consequences are potentially so dire, but also because it kind of gives in to Putin's blackmail, which no one wants to do. And yet one cannot ignore, right, that this is not just any ordinary conflict. Um, this is a conflict with one of the two or one of the, you know, the few great nuclear superpowers. And so this is this difficult issue. You know, right now it makes a lot of sense to send a lot of heavy weapons to Ukraine, but the kind of the ultimate um, effect of that, uh, you know, is still pretty un uncertain, unfortunately. The one thing I, I would just say on this is, you know, I, I think you have to bear in mind that these lines are actually the lines that have been here for this conflict just about the whole time. That's what makes the diplomats this provocative. The Biden administration, NATO, this whole time, they have been building up massively the military presence along the borderline between NATO and Russia uh, and a variety of countries. You also see them re-engage with Finland and Sweden. Obviously, countries talking about joining NATO, a pretty dramatic step. I mean, this is why it's a strategic failure on Putin's part is because he has single-handedly reinvigorated uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in a way that is having a military presence and more effective at securing European regional security than it really has been the last 30 or 40 years, right? Uh, certainly since the end of the Cold War. And so, you know, that ability to boost those things up isn't actually that new, nor is giving arms to the Ukrainians. That's always been kind of the line the Biden administration fairly savvily early on drew out. They said, we're not going to put any troops in Ukraine. We're going to arm the hell out of them. And that's not going to be escalation, Vladimir Putin, because if you start escalating off of that, then we will send troops into Ukraine. That's not, they didn't say that, but I think, frankly, that's the implication. Um, and it's a bargaining act. It's this constant line, exercise in line drawing. And these other Russians play that game again. They reiterate, say, we don't like you sending these fancy weapons to Ukrainians. And just so you know, any weapons you send to the Ukrainians can be targeted of strikes in Ukraine. That's not actually saying anything new. They were targeted. They could be targeted by strikes by Russian forces in Ukraine and had been already, right? The idea is that we're reiterating this line that Ukraine is the field of battle. Escalation there is to, of certain sorts is permissible and isn't. Outside of that, that's the line where both parties can do kind of what they want, but it's not going to be seen as a uh, basis for changing or expanding the domain of the conflict, which has remained primarily around Ukraine. Now might be trickling into Transnistria, some other disputed territories a little bit. There's been some hints of activity there in the last few days, but a little early to tell right now as of recording Tuesday morning, our usual time. The one thing I note here, this is what makes diplomats, putting diplomats in controversial because it's suggesting that, hey, we're sending personnel back into this war zone, this war zone that we all had said kind of was off limits. Americans are going to go back. Um, and it's time to admit that. And it means that Americans are willing to take more risks of escalation at that point, as are European governments. But again, Americans doing it somewhat more significant, I think, from a Russian perspective and probably in reality. And we're pushing the limit possibly all the way to Kiev. Now, Americans are being, again, fairly conservative about that because they understand the risks. But pushing that means really essentially, I think they strongly suggest Americans think the war has been lost there by the Russians and that they are confident enough the war has been lost. They're starting to reassert that presence and take what would have seemed like a very risky behavior eight weeks ago in putting personnel there and saying, we're, we're, we don't think it's as risky as it once was, because frankly, the odds of you taking this territory is very low. That's what makes it such a strong message, why it's something I think you'll see the Russians have responded strongly to. And I think the concern is they will respond strongly to. Maybe they will say it was provocative enough that you know we will shoot something down, make it look like an accident, make it look like 
you know, this is the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and was it 1999, right? But it's, in fact, you are doing it deliberately, but try and make it, you have plausible deniability to prevent escalation. That's the kind of concern people are worried about here is, is you're going to face this Russian pushback and it's going to be a little bit of a dicey situation. Um, but the Biden administration seems to have reached the calculation as to have its European allies that this is the moment where they need to start pointing out to Putin how badly he's lost and reinforcing the Ukrainians that, in fact, we understand you are winning this war. And this is a big way to do it is by putting their own skin back in the game. And it's notable for that reason, I think, more than anything else. Moving from visits to one nation's capital to visits to another nation's capital, let us return to one of our favorite topics, the January 6th insurrection of sorts, a little indirectly this time. Um, because, of course, at this time, we are talking about none other than Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, member of Congress, who has ties to a number of folks involved in the January 6th insurrection in different stripes. We've seen some text messages come forward in the last few days in that regard, but was subjected to a hearing this past week in which she spent several hours responding to questions by a group of progressive legal activists seeking to disqualify her from holding public office by virtue of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a Reconstruction-era post-Civil War constitutional amendment that essentially says people who engage in insurrection uh, or provide aid and support to people engaged in insurrection while they are holding certain types of public office may in turn be disqualified from holding those offices in the future are, in fact, unless they are reinstated or that disqualification is removed by two-thirds of Congress. We've seen several of these efforts move forward recently. We saw one effort move forward against Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina that encountered a federal judge's objection saying, in fact, his disqualification was invalidated by the 1872 Amnesty Act, an argument we've talked about before on this podcast. Uh, a similar argument failed to persuade a federal judge in this case to allow the case to go forward. Um, but we recently saw a judge in, I believe it was Arizona state court um, ruled that similar challenges against Paul Gozar, another member of Congress, and a, at least one state official, maybe more than one, also couldn't go forward on the basis of a third argument, not the 1872 Amnesty Act, but instead an argument that really, at least for those federal representatives, only Congress has the authority to disqualify people. Individual states cannot for constitutional qualifications, an argument that we've seen some law professors make in this regard for the last few weeks. So these things are all over the map, and the MTG hearing is notable because it's the first one to have borne some sort of fruit in the forms of these hearings, which a lot of groups were not so subtly advertising as the real idea before this, that they're going to get Marjorie Taylor Greene to testify before the January 6th committee can get her to testify. But Alan, I want to turn to you first. You know, what did we actually learn from Marjorie Taylor Greene in this hearing? And you know, what does it tell us both about her activities? How useful is it to building this picture of January 6th? And, and what does it tell us about these broader efforts to disqualify people under this provision? I mean, I, I think it doesn't tell us all that much that we didn't already know, which is that she's a terrible, crazy person. You know, whether that is appropriate grounds is that for- a ter Is that like a technical legal term? Yeah, that's, that's a legal legal term. You can look that up in Black's Law, right? I'm crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy, terrible person. She's uh, crazy making, I believe is what they she's say. Definitely. She's definitely <laughs> She is crazy making uh, without without question. <clears throat> really bring on, bringing shame on CrossFit generally too, uh, which is the, the real crime here. Look, I, I, I think it's important to step back and ask, what, is that, what exactly are these lawsuits trying to accomplish? Because I will say, um, as someone, and I, I yield to no one in my criticism of the <laughs> Capitol riot insurrectionists and all of their Republican Party enablers, but this does strike me as the, the, the use of Section 3 to go after people like Green or Cawthorn does strike me as, as fundamentally misguided and not terribly effective. Because what are you trying to gain from this, right? Well, 
in the best practical case, you could eliminate two relatively unimportant Republicans from the House of Representatives. Okay, that still leaves however many hundreds of other Republicans that all voted uh, to uh, not certify the election um, and are continuing to plug crazy QAnon and anti-democratic conspiracy theories. And then what have you, uh, and what are the costs of that? Well, the costs are to continue to feed the Republican and right conspiracy theories that everyone is out to get them and that the real enemies of democracy are on the left. And whether or not you agree with that, right, um, that is going to be a product of this, um, especially if the lawsuits that are brought are not overwhelmingly strong. Right? This is the other problem. I, I think people are looking at these and saying, what lawsuits can we make plausible arguments for? And then let's bring those lawsuits. But when you're dealing with something as hugely salient and as hugely controversial as disqualification of people who are otherwise validly elected to public office, you don't want to do that on relatively marginal legal theories, right? And I think for Cawthorn, for Green, for all of these folks, right, these are just not particularly strong arguments because there's not evidence that these individuals did the sort of on-the-grounds involvement with the attack that I think what would be for most people the kind of intuitive understanding of insurrection. So you're not having too much of an effect on keeping people who support insurrection out of Congress. You're doing it at potentially very serious political cost. You are um, distracting your side, um, right, the, the Democratic side, from the work that actually has to happen for it to regain a durable majority in this country, which uh, is to, you know, build a broader coalition um, and actually win elections. I think that that's completely correct. And I I do think that it is important to kind of be foot stomping the rule of law at a certain point, especially when you've had someone as, as fringy and as uh, conspiratorial as Marjorie Taylor Greene has been. But on the other hand, I do, I completely side with you about the conspiracy theory kind of paranoia of the right. And I really keep wondering Every time we kind of knock, when I say we, every time the left kind of knocks some type of crazy fringe Republican out of the game, I feel like, you know, they they just keep popping up. I mean, it's not as if we're running out of, of, this, of this type of uh, behavior. And I almost feel as if there will be a backlash if they are successful. I don't think that's likely, but if they are successful, that there will be a backlash against kind of using the law in this kind of, you know, very extreme way. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that there's a likelihood that this, you know, if if this was even successful, had a chance of being successful, that the political ramifications would be bad in either scenario? Yeah, I, I do. And just to, again, just quickly respond to your to your point. I mean, so the, there's a phrase that I've used on this uh, on this show a bunch of times now, and every time I, I butcher it, so I'm going to butcher it yet again because um, I just refuse to learn it. Is it crazy is, making? It's not, it's not crazy <laughs> making, but I bet it makes everyone else. I bet it's, bet it's crazy making for Scott. Um, but if you if you aim for the king, right, you best you know, shoot to kill, right? Um, no, is, oh my no, god! If you come for the king, you best not miss. Thank you. There what we the go. Hell is wrong with you? There, there's a version on the wire or something. It's from the well, I mean, wire. It, well, but it predates the wire. There's a. There's a, there's oh a, a I don't know. It's not from Wired. <laughs> Omar Michael K. Williams, one of the best 
Okay, sorry. Rest in, Lost rest in, before his time. Rest, rest in peace, certainly. It's also a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, if I recall. Excellent. Right. Thank paraphrase you. of that. That's okay. Shh. All fancy. The point, the point, right, is that it doesn't make sense to do this sort of low-level pruning of a random radical, you know, here or there, because it doesn't actually solve the problem, and it just inflames more of the radicalism and conspiracy theory on the side that you are trying to deal with, right? You know, this work to the extent, you know, to the extent that these sorts of disqualifications, lustrations, however you want to call them, have worked in the past, it's when it has been accompanied by overwhelming defeat of the side you are then trying to exclude from politics, right? The Civil War, right, to the extent that this worked, and it didn't really because the North basically gave up on Reconstruction, it worked when it did because the North had total power over the South and could exclude the entire secessionist political class from, from, from public office, right? The same with respect to, uh, you know, post-World War II Germany, the same with respect to post-World War II Japan, the same with respect to certain of the post-communist regimes, right? If you're going to take this step, and it's, again, historically not even clear that the step works that well in the long run, you have to take it overwhelmingly, right? What you cannot do is do these, like, little things on the edges and, you know, What's frustrating to me about this is that the, the progressive legal activists that are doing this seem to have just no strategic vision of what overall they're trying to accomplish. And, and they are equating, I have some plausible legal arguments here, which they do, to be clear, with, therefore, it's a good idea to do this litigation. And no one has made clear to me what the overall long-term strategy here is. So I have to say, I take I take issue with your premise that these are unimportant members of Congress, because here we all are talking about them. Right. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene may have been stripped of her committee assignments and she may not be, you know, a power wielder in Congress, but she is a huge center of rhetorical discussion in the zeitgeist, for better or worse. I have feelings about which of those. But in my mind, also, like, Alan, I, I don't think that the right needs any particular riling up. I think if it's not this, it's going to be something else. I don't think that the whack-a-mole issue of, you know, if we dispense with one person, aren't five more going to appear in her place? Like, sure, those people are going to be there regardless. I, I don't think that those people are sitting on the sidelines waiting for an obscure administrative law judge to say a certain thing to decide whether or not to emerge. And I think that you know, to, to the idea that this is just a distraction. I mean, it's possible to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? There, There is a way in which that it is useful, I think, to explore the different ways to try to combat this problem. And this amendment was passed. It's there, I think, in, in response to your idea of, you know, just because this is a law that is out there, is it worth pursuing? I mean, it was it was written for this purpose, right? And and the the fact of the matter is we don't know how much of an insurrectionist Marjorie Taylor Greene was. And also I'll point out that the amendment is broader than that. It's not just engaged in insurrection. She doesn't need to have engaged herself in the insurrection. It's also whether you've given aid or comfort to them. And and we don't know to what extent she or any of these other individuals, not just members of Congress, but others who have been challenged as well, have have fit those characteristics because there hasn't been discovery, right? And this was the first effort to gather real discovery. And to me, there is an important facet of these suits that is just gathering 
evidence, gathering information that is not a tool that's available elsewhere, other than, I suppose, through committees and hearings, but that doesn't carry the same weight as a proceeding where someone has to testify under oath and therefore subject themselves to the possibility of contempt of court if they lie under oath. And to me, that is a valuable tool that if it's out there, you should use it. You know, I, I've said, said this before on this podcast, but I, I'm going to reiterate this point. Like this whole line of argument uh, and the idea of using this, the 14th Amendment Section 3 in this way really makes me extremely nervous for the simple reason that, you know, the language of some of these provisions and the Constitution and statutes throughout the 19th century is super broad and lacking a lot of clarity in terms of what it actually means. And so, you know, other parts of the 14th Amendment, we sent, frankly spent the subsequent 150 years trying to figure out what the hell they mean and have had countless Supreme Court cases interpreting and building it out what exactly it means. This is one provision that Supreme Court hasn't really touched. Federal courts have barely touched. So it's pretty virgin territory um, coming in. And that worries me for its implications, right? I mean, this is a, could be an exception to the First Amendment because you're essentially saying, hey, look, you engage in aid or support for an insurrection and aid or support might be interpreted as rhetorical support or incitement. Um, other activities that would be within the First Amendment scope, or at least, you know, in the zone of potential First Amendment protection, it could be interpreted to include those, particularly when you're talking about proceedings like this, where the interpretations are at least in some cases being proffered, and this happened in a Reconstruction era too, by state legislatures who basically are saying, well, we're going to disqualify our own people based on our, our interpretation of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Um, federal Congress could do the same for federal legislators, right? And the universe of people that are covered by this provision is not as narrow as people think in my mind, as clearly as people think it is, right? It all depends on how you define insurrection. It's people who had a public office, had made a public oath under the Constitution, either a former official or it's a current official, state or federal level, and then engage in some sort of aid or support for an insurrection, right? If you would even interpret insurrection to simply mean like, you know, physical opposition to enforcement of different types of law or enforcement of government, types of civil disobedience. I agree. I think that's way too broad a definition. Um, but you look at how the inter in, the uh, Insurrection Act has been expanded and applied, sometimes using other language to supplement what insurrection means, but sometimes those some of all those words could also be informing what insurrection means. The way the term has been used in other contexts, I'm just not clear that that interpretation is so far beyond the pale that we couldn't see people trying to use it that way. And that's why it makes me really nervous that we're seeing people being a, pursuing all these very decentralized actions, trying to put a huge burden on people pursuing this office based off of this scenario, because it just worries me about the precedent we're setting for future scenarios. Like, are we confident that you know, legislators who actively associate themselves with civil disobedience, civil disobedience that can sometimes can turn violence in future cases, aren't going to face a similar barrier. And that makes me worried because civil disobedience, which is like a very much a 20th century, like in my mind, American virtue, but that frankly, the Reconstruction era probably did not view that favorably for reason, understandable reasons when they wrote the 14th Amendment Section 3. But like civil disobedience is important, particularly when you're talking about like minorities and underrepresented people and people who really like need to make a point and a stand. And some of the biggest advancements we've gotten for people in those categories has been through a good dose of civil disobedience mixed in with legal advocacy and reform efforts, right? But what happens when people who start voicing support for groups like that begin facing these sorts of scrutiny or the sorts of risk because of activities that otherwise we would think would be protected by the First Amendment? But by the way, 14th Amendment has this big carve out for it. I think that fundamental discomfort, frankly, is something that the more you dig in and really wrestle with the hard decisions being made here, 
a lot more people begin to experience. And frankly, people are beginning to experience more around these proceedings. I frankly think it's something that's really motivating the judges here, because two out of three judges we've seen rule on this issue, we've seen try to kick it to Congress and say, look, we're not going to decentralize this. Congress needs to enact a law to take advantage of these provisions, either because of the 1872 Amnesty Act, which kicked it that way, or because of the constitutional provisions on disqualification. And I think that's from a policy perspective, I think that's kind of right. I don't know if it's the absolutely required legal reading, but I think it's within the realm of reasonable legal reading. That's why I've been kind of skeptical that courts are going to allow these things to ultimately result in any of these people being disqualified. But it makes me really nervous not to at least have this authority, which is on the books. We can't get rid of it. It's in the Constitution now. But require a higher barrier politically to implement in some way than we're really seeing in these proceedings thus far. Uh, that's just why they, I'm worried we're going to end up biting a lot more off than we can chew and, and doing things that's going to hurt a lot of political actors in the future that we may be quite sympathetic with, even if though I don't have much sympathy for the people being targeted with these efforts now. Yeah. I mean, I think though that this was what happened on January 6th was an unprecedented thing that I think most of us will agree was outside of the bounds of the rule of law, right? And is something that is unacceptable and that we are trying to deal with in the sense of figuring out what legal framework articulates that sense that we all have that this was an affront to the rule of law. And I, I guess I, I can see your hesitation that it's not clear how this will be interpreted and where this will go and you know maybe the fact that this is being done in a decentralized manner and is is a sort of sort of nerve-wracking way to commence what will be undoubtedly a long process of evaluating what is the proper way to interpret interpret section 3 of the 14th amendment but i don't know that there is anything inherently wrong with needing to explore how the law addresses this situation and i you know to the extent that there is a carve out from the first amendment that'll that'll be evaluated in litigation in how jurisprudence evolves this is not going to be the first time that there needs to be a weighing of something else against the first amendment and, and i just think that there there is always the concern that it doesn't turn out the way that we are hoping or that that some of us are hoping but i i don't know that it's not good or, or maybe even just inevitable that there has to be a space right now in our legal system to be exploring what it is about what happened that we should think of as illegal. Well, for better or for worse, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. But of course, this would not be Rational Security 2.0 if we did not leave you without some object lessons to carry with you for the rest of the week uh, and to think over until our next episode. Alan, why don't I hand it over to you to get us started? So my object lesson is uh, the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is this kind of indie sci-fi sort of superhero movie. Um, that I watched this weekend, uh, which was great. Uh, and it's also just really nice to finally get back into movie theaters, one of the things I've missed most uh, since pandemic. I don't know exactly how to describe the plot, except that uh, Michelle Yao plays a you know, Asian-American immigrant into the United States, a sh uh, owner of a struggling laundromat, and just generally someone who's very stressed out. And then it turns out that she needs to travel across the multiverse to save the universe. Spoilers. Um, 
Well, that yeah, that's that's the whole premise. Jamie Lee Curtis. I thought plays... this was a laundromat biopic. I've been waiting for all these years. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, is like a, a national treasure. I think she totally steals the movie uh, with just the greatest portrayal of an IRS auditor I think I've ever seen. Um, the whole thing is super kinetic, super imaginative. It's uh, you know, in an age where all we do is watch like new Marvel movies and like there's a place for that, um, where everything is generated inside computers. It's very cool to see a completely original premise done on a fairly low budget with almost entirely practical effects and just so much. It is arguably like 20% more movie than it should be overall, um, but it's still fun to just, you really get your 12 bucks worth. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. It is a very fun movie. Everything, everywhere all at once. All right. Kate, we usually reserve the honor of going last for our guests, but I know you are up against your deadline. So we're going to hand over to you to go next. So I walked into my office today and I have this framed poster that is really quite excellent. I am holding it up so everyone can see it, but it's loose tweets sync fleets. And it's like in the style of a, like a world war or like, to kind of like propaganda poster. And this poster, I think that John got it for me as like a anniversary or birthday present or something like in 2008 or nine or something a million years ago. But it keeps being relevant over and over again for so many reasons. But it seems particularly uh, on point today for rational security because of the national security and Elon Musk mashup. And so... I, I leave you with the poster, loose tweets, sync fleets. I love it. I have screenshotted you holding it up, which will make an appearance in our show notes. Fair warning. <laughs> uh, so we can see your resting Elon Musk face as well. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I am doing a uh, return to another familiar topic. There's the third return, which is the saga of my pineapple core. Because I mentioned I got a unitasker I loved. I used it to course on pineapples. which was great. And then I did what I said what I was going to do. God damn it. I took all those old pineapple skins. I shoved them in a jar and I left them there for like two weeks with some sugar and some spices. And I made tapache, uh, which is this crazy fermented pineapple drink. That's really quite lovely. And I encourage other people to try it out there. You basically just take a bunch of pineapple skins or full pineapples, let it ferment in some sugar water for a while. I threw in a chili pepper. I threw in some ginger. I threw in some cinnamon and some cloves. And it came out quite lovely. I made one batch the other other week. Uh, I'm making another batch now um, with uh, a habanero chili that I'm very excited about. It's going to have a little bit of kick to it. And so I am super excited. And I will say it is, it's kind of like kombucha-y if you're a kombucha person, which I am uh, deeply uh, and spiritually. But on top of that, it's got like a little nice pineapple click. And I'm looking forward to turning it into some cocktails. I made like kind of a poor man's tiki drink last night, kind of like a pina colada Mai Tai mashup. I'm still tweaking, but maybe I'll share that in future weeks. I think it'd be kind of good frozen if you could figure out a way to do that. So it's pretty tasty. I recommend try it. So you too can make your own rotten pineapple water at home. Uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, so I'll throw an ingredient into the show notes, uh, probably a recipe into the show notes. So you all can give it a try. Scott, you had me at rotten pineapple water. Uh, but while we're on the topic of pineapples, I also had a pineapple themed culinary success this weekend. Uh, I made America's Test Kitchen's rum glazed roasted pineapple, and it was one mm. of the tastiest things I've had in a long time. And what's nice is that you do have to like core and 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 peel the pineapple so i i should have saved the scraps i didn't uh, but next time i do it i will save them so i can make uh rotten pineapple water why have we spent so much time talking about foreign 
like foreign national security and online speech and political lawsuits when we could have been talking about rotten pineapple. Well, that's the question we ask ourselves every week, which is why we're spinning this off into our, uh, you know, food themed fermentation and uh, vegan food cast raw fare, which we're very excited to and is coming forward uh, Wait, sooner rather than later. How have I not been invited as the inaugural guest <laughs> on that show? I've got lamb prosciutto. I've got kombucha that I've mailed to Alan. I have <laughs> like... Like, I have so many good stories about mailing sourdough starter all over these United States and getting pot butter back in return because... Oh, I love I mean, it. Yeah. This is the game. Well, we we will make this happen. Maybe this will be a Patreon perk, folks. If you're interested, send us a message. We'll start Raw Fair going right, finally, after all these years of talking about it, uh, which, will be, which will be amazing. Um, but until then, we have one last, last object lesson. Natalie, let me hand it over to you to bring us home. Okay. Well, I suppose first object lesson has to be another culinary thing because I just feel pressure. And that is a phenomenal flourless chocolate cake that my mother made for Passover. Um, I will try to get her to give me the recipe, but I'm pretty sure she just makes it up as she goes along. So it may be a a recipe annotated with, and then add some of, yeah. So we'll see what we can do, but I'll, I'll try to get something for the show notes. Um, my non-culinary object lesson is, all right, people, I'm, I'm going to take a stance on the most controversial issue of our time. I'm going to make public my deep affiliation with the Oxford comma. I feel very, very strongly about the Oxford comma. I have had a decades-long feud with my father about the Oxford comma. He is anti, I am pro, I am right, and he is wrong. And recently, I became aware of a fantastic t-shirt, or I should say t-shirts, from a company called Nerdy Tees, because yes, it is nerdy. And it is a shirt, well, the, the, the correct one is a shirt that is called the Oxford Comma Preservation Society. There is a less good shirt, which I purchased for my father, that is called, that is labeled as the Anti-Oxford Comma Club. And um, so I I had to buy them and I gave one to my dad and one to myself. And it just brings me so much delight. So I had to share it. I am on board to get my Oxford comma tea. I've been fighting this good fight at Lawfare now for many, many years and losing it every term. But maybe this is the year we finally, finally make a change. Fingers crossed. That is change I can believe in. But until we get there, sadly, that is the end of this week's episode of Rational Security. But remember, Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors. And for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the response to the January 6th insurrection, The Aftermath, and our forthcoming special series on the breakdown of the SIV program in Afghanistan, Allies. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon while you're at it for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Alan, our special guests Natalie Orpit and Kate Klonick, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 